0: So check this out. I got word that Hulu threw this crazy party in Beverly Hills with literally all of the biggest reality TV stars. I'm talking about all the Bravo lips: Candy Burris, Portia Williams, James Kennedy, Jax Taylor, even Captain Lee, and Kate Chastain. Here's the genius part. If you want to find out what happened at the party... You have to watch the commercials. Yes, I know I'll be tuning in and then signing up for a free trial to get my favorite reality TV shows at Hulu.com.
1: Star Trek Picard, Season 1, Episode 4, Absolute Candor, is over. But we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Leese, and no, you are not listening to a lost episode of the Romulan talk show, Your Manure. You're listening to me, giving you all of the candor that I have in my system, and with me as always is the guy that I know knows how to say bite me in Romulan, Mr. Mike Bloom.
0: Jess, you said lost episode, and just so you know, like I had a Soji Dodge X like activation wake up process where I was like, <laughs> "All right, let me grab for these sounds. I'm ready to go." I don't know exactly what to talk about. Uh, you know, we we're sword fighting, not fist fighting. But I now I'm back in space. For now, we're not on a planet. Well, we're on a planet, but we're not on Earth. We are in space officially with Picard. And to be quite candid, uh, using that absolute candor, as much as I enjoyed the first few episodes. I'm loving Picard in space now.
1: I mean, that's kind of what Picard does. He goes to space and chews bubblegum, and he's all out of bubblegum right now.
0: Right. But I guess, you know, maybe it's because we hadn't seen it really happen this season. I mean, even when he was talked about, you know, helping with the Romulan evacuation, it was more so done from Earth. The only time we saw him in space was in that dream sequence that started off the premiere. So this was really the first episode, you know, in Chapter 2 of Picard, and it was off to a great start. I feel like it was no coincidence that this was also the first episode directed by Jonathan Frakes as well, because this felt the most, quote-unquote, like, old Star Trek to me. This felt most authentic to an episode of The Next Generation, where it's, okay, let's go to a planet that's having a problem, and try to solve that problem. Granted, this had a lot more weight to it, because of the, uh, the canon built into it, but, yeah, I mean, I would say... A large amount of this episode I really enjoyed. I think this might be my favorite episode so far. There were, you know, a couple of moments here and there that I was not a huge fan of, specifically on the Borg Cube. But when it came to the Vashti of it all, I I really can't complain.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have some quibbles as well, but I thought it was a fabulously entertaining hour of television. I really, I was shocked when we got to the end of it. And I knew it was the end of it just because of the way they dropped that new piece of information on us. But I was was very absorbed. I wanted to know what happened next. Um, I will say, though, I'm getting a little bit tired of this plot point of, okay, we're going to go find a new person to join our motley crew of Oddballs and Misfits. Oh, they don't want anything to do with us. Oh, they're mad at us. Oh, they don't want to come. Oh, well, I guess I'll go back to space. Oh, wait a second. They do want to come after all. (laughs) How many of these are we getting? This is like, this is like the first Half hour of the Magnificent Seven, but it just played on a loop.
0: Yeah, or like the first twenty minutes of Ocean's Eleven, right? Uh, exactly. I know that we had a tweet of like the whole "you son of a bitch, I'm in" of it all, like one more heist. But to your point, I believe that El is going to be the last member of this of this crew, concerning that I believe he was the only main cast member who had not been introduced to us yet at this point. And you could also argue it is a little weird that we like had that big epic shot to finish off episode three of Picard and Raffi and Rios and Jurati, and now we're adding another on, and it's not until the end. But I feel like now that we're finally going towards Fort Cloud, and it seems like we're going there in the next episode, this is when the crew's finally going to coalesce. So this is sort of, I guess, not even like chapter two, but maybe like uh, a little transitory passage between chapter one and chapter two that sort of has, you know, semblances of both elements in them.
1: You know, if you're Elnor, you gotta feel like you're getting a little bit slighted here. He's, he's absolutely the poochie of the gang because we were kind of presented with this is the crew and now we can go to space. And it's funny, Mike, I don't even think we talked about Elnor when we did our cast preview, talking about who was going to be in this show and what they were going to do. I mean, I know we talked about Rios. We talked about Raffi. We talked about Gerardi. We talked about the people from the original. Star Trek universe coming into this show, this Elnor guy, I feel like this was all brand new information for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, we saw a couple of shots of him in the trailer, mainly the ones we saw this episode, him doing this badass little whirly top thing with the sword, and then him doing the open hands motion to Picard, which I love. Like, I know it's a little bit of like sign language 101 or how people think ASL actually is, but I love that this Organization that celebrates, you know, absolute candor and being completely honest. Its symbol is an open book. It's on the nose, but I love that nose. I think it's a it's a cute little button nose. But yeah, I mean, he seemed like a very mysterious character to begin with. Though now you could argue for comparing Romulans here. We know a lot more about him than we do about Neric at this point, and maybe it is because of the of the way of of absolute candor. You know that he was very open. We found out a good amount about him in this episode. And look, to your point, I think his relationship with Picard took a step in the right direction. I There are probably still going to be moments like we're seeing with Rafi where they're not completely on the same page. There is some clear water that is not completely under the bridge yet. But I feel like we got a good sense of the character, or at least what he brings to the table, which is something completely new. I guess in the theming of the Jat Vash, but almost the complete opposite, this koat milat, this whole idea of a completely different sect of Romulans that exist that almost spit in the face of everything that the Romulans stand for.
1: Yeah, I mean, I did not have on my list of predictions for where I thought this was going next. I did not have Romulan warrior nuns. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I think if anyone did on their bingo card, we might have to check to make sure that wasn't like Akiva Goldman bingo card. <laughs>
1: no kidding. Although, you know, there are some other sci-fi franchises that I think were starting to bring in some really heavy influences of other universes. And for me, this this echoes, and it has been decades since I read these books, but it echoes Dune for me. They definitely also mm. had their own sect of uh, of warrior nuns in the dune universe
0: Mm, i'm not too familiar with dune but does it sort of mix that those elements a lot more because obviously the big fun and exciting element about this is you know obviously nuns are more of a peaceful uh organization or at least the way we usually associate it with to have them wielding katana blades is definitely an image that really strikes the mind
1: Well, on the other hand, you have plenty of Shaolin monks. These are just like gender-flipped Shaolin monks, aren't they?
0: Yeah, I guess that's true as well. And it's also really interesting because this feels a little more Star Wars to me. And maybe it's because it's referencing fighting styles of the past. And obviously, uh, you know, a lot of Star Wars, specifically stuff like The Mandalorian, most recently, has been couched in a lot of samurai pop culture. Also due to the fact that, I mean, this is a society where the basic weapon shoots, you know, little pew-pew bl- laser blasts out of your gun. We'll see exactly how well their swords fare in favor of that. But I guess since they're the best, you know, close combat fighters in the universe, it, it might, you know, lend at least pretty well to them so it doesn't make them a complete disadvantage in any fight they're in.
1: I mean, Picard must assume there's going to be a point where there might be hand-to-hand combat or maybe he's just feeling really bad because there's a lot that Picard has to feel bad for here.
0: Yeah, we thought that him ghosting Rafi for 14 years after she got fired for you know him resigning was a pretty bad boo-boo, but Picard also ghosted an entire planet after he abandoned them.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's no wonder that he's persona non grata everywhere in the galaxy right now. And I was kind of sympathetic for him. I felt like maybe he's just damaged by all of the guilt about not being able to save everybody. And now it's like, no, I think I feel a little less sympathy for him this episode. It's like, get it together, man. You just sort of pieced out on everybody when you couldn't, when you couldn't save the entire galaxy. It's no wonder everybody's mad at you. And it's weird that you have the gall to be surprised by this.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, because I I do want to talk about that, because I'm not entirely sure, since we obviously didn't see exactly what Picard did after the last time he left Vashti, whether he petitioned Starfleet to go back there, whether, to your point, he was just so besodden with guilt and sadness about everything that happened that he sort of just, like, gave up everything and became a recluse. I will say... I really liked. I mean, I guess this is the benefit of having a Star Trek series in an age of CGI and just great technical innovations. I thought Vashi as a set was beautiful and just absolutely trounces the umpteenth amounts of desert town sets that we got throughout the the Star Trek in the eighties and nineties. It's it was. I thought it was a really beautiful setting, very well decorated. Like you got a sense of the climate, and it felt very lived in, which was awesome. I will say my one quibble with the flashback scene was Picard, you know, when he's fencing with Elnor, gets the call from Rafi, and I don't feel like they necessarily need to do the, what do you mean, since attacked Mars, So it might not have been <laughs> to their own will, and now you, we won't be able to rebuild the fleet to save the Romulans. Like We understood the exposition at this point, we're four episodes in, we don't need our hands to be held in that regard, but To your point, I think it sets things up very interestingly, where when Picard comes back, we do feel those emotional stakes, where sort of like the conversation with Admiral Clancy, we understand the other side of things, where it's not like, why are they being mad at Picard? We love Picard. There are some very understandable feelings of anger and for some paranoia towards what Picard represented and what he promised them and what he ultimately wasn't able to deliver on.
1: It's true. And it's really interesting because I'm not sure that the Star Trek universe ever intends for us to feel anger toward our captains or even to feel conflicted about our captains. Like even at points where they do things that are morally a little bit gray, you're always on their side. And this is a new direction. This is really, this is really very interesting to me that you have. You're painting Jean-Luc Picard, like, probably the most heroic of all of the Star Trek captains. You're kind of painting him with this morally ambiguous brush, and you're like, I kind of don't agree with that. I don't think I would have done that. And I'm maybe a little bit mad at him.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess from your perspective, obviously, we're only seeing a small slice of what Vashti was like, Uh, both, I guess, during Picard's evacuation, played with his, like, Casual jet setting tan admiral suit uh, <laughs> and matching hat. And, you know, the I'm, I'm way- going to call
1: that his Marcus Brody suit.
0: Yeah, I was going to say his John Hammond suit. Uh, <laughs> maybe evoking, I mean, I guess if John Hammond had filled a park with dinosaurs and then abandoned them for 14 years and it came back <laughs> to the Lost World. But yeah, I mean, because uh, I looking at it from Eleanor's perspective, and especially from the perspective of that Romulan senator. I thought that was super interesting, because I guess it really evoked to me uh, the philosophy from the comics of the Romulans really not taking the Federation at face value, where they were approaching them and saying, hey, this thing's coming your way, and then being like, this is a trap, you're just trying to scatter us. It almost seems like, Jess, that that's come full circle, where like the grief and anger over the supernova has now turned back towards the Federation and trying to... Form this idea of it being an inside job.
1: Yeah, it's it's so layered here because it's also like these particular people with this particular way of life would respond in this particular way, uh, and react to the way in which Picard dealt with them in the aftermath. It's it's really really interesting, and I want to I want to back up for a second because I want to know if I want to get a gut check on here. Mike, you noticed in the previews, like we've seen Elnor as an adult a little bit leading into here and we had a new regular cast member come in. But I was at a point about a third of the way through the episode where I thought, is everybody really mad at him because something terrible happened to this boy after he abandoned him? Mm. Like maybe he died a terrible death, which is what usually happens to children that take a liking to Picard. And I was ready Maybe for that's that. that's why he doesn't
0: like children is because he knows his, he's cursed and nearly any child he touches just perishes after that.
1: That's that's right. And, you know, the, the reason that he was so happy in the Nexus, like celebrating Charles Dickens Christmas with this huge brood of children is he's like, well, they're not going to die violently now that I'm hanging out with them.
0: Yeah, maybe that's why he really hates Captain Picard days, because that's just a reminder to him of all the children's graves that will soon be filled with these poor, poor young souls.
1: All the child blood on his hands.
0: Exactly, forever unclean.
1: Yeah. It's... I I was really expecting, especially, like, as... As dark as Star Trek seems to be these days, I was really expecting them to be like, yeah, that kid that you didn't check up on for 14 years, guess what happened to him? He died. It's your fault. We hate you.
0: No, just if this was modern day Star Trek, they'd show Kid Elnor getting his head cut off and his (laughs) guts cut out and just like blood spewing everywhere for about like a full minute of screen time. The streets
1: running green with the blood of the young innocents. Uh, I, I thought that beheading was pretty gnarly, though.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think. I mean, obviously, we talked about conspiracy from Season 1 of TNG as maybe one of like the most gruesome Star Trek moments of all time. But I'm really trying to compare. It's almost like a, a head-to-head, if you will, as to which is the more gruesome death overall. This one obviously has the, the cleaner effects, but... I don't know if if you'd rather have your head explode or have it get cut off in one slice. Maybe
1: I'm jaded because I watch so much Walking Dead, but I was like, this is like a Walking Dead death. This is like one Mm. of these suspiciously clean beheadings where the head like bounces on the ground for effect, but it's not nearly as difficult or gruesome as it probably should be.
0: Right. It's like the old, again, another samurai movie thing where the two enemies jump at one another and you see their swords cross and then they both land facing away from one another. And then slowly one person likes their (laughs) top half slides off their bottom half and it turns out that our hero prevailed.
1: Yep. I've, I've seen that. That is a classic samurai trope. And if we're, if we're going like full Kurosawa here in this episode, I, that, that definitely tracks.
0: Yeah. So I guess going back to your original question before I got ahead of myself, if you will. uh, So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I could see things get very dark with regards to because, I mean, I guess in one respect, I am glad that Elnor did grow up to be an adult because I feel like what he brings is very interesting. I mean, he comes from a culture where he feels very displaced, uh, obviously, he was, you know, this boy refugee, and I was lucky enough to have an interview with even uh, Evan Ivagora, who plays Elnor uh, for CBR.com. He said that his character's backstory is that his parents died before, like, he even remembered them, so he pretty much always grew up alone. And now he's sort of been shunted upon this organization of all women where he wouldn't belong in the first place. And someone tells him, like, no, 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 I'm I'm going to find a good home for you in a little bit, don't you worry, and then leaves for 14 years, like, there's a lot of stuff going on there. So I think, no wonder the dude's really taken up violence and does it almost sadistically to a very clean effect. Uh, I I can imagine that he's using it to sort of channel his feelings, maybe towards Picard, towards the world, towards the universe. So while it would have been more shocking to be like, this is what you did, Picard, this kid's blood is on your hands, I like that we did see adult Eleanor because... That allowed something to be directly in front of Picard to remind him what he left behind rather than a gravestone.
1: Yeah, that's true. And it can continue to remind him. Uh, I, I wonder how that conversation went, though. Like, after Picard peaced out of there, the nuns went to Elnor and said, he's definitely not coming back because he feels tremendous guilt for what he's done to our people. And he also doesn't really like kids that much. So... You know, you're probably gonna be stuck with us forever and we sort of resent you for it.
0: Yeah. Even though I guess I don't know, when you join the co the, the Kovat Milat, do you not age? Was that the thing with the one nun who didn't seem to age in fourteen years, but Elnor definitely did? Well, Are you Mike, still, like giving up your stuff for immortality?
1: No, you're forgetting you're forgetting Romulan physiology. Romulans and Vulcans live a lot longer than humans. I think they kind of age at around the same rate, but you know Spock was like 150 or something. I think it's more like they're going to live to be 200 years old, and so 14 years is kind of nothing.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true. Though I mean, it's enough for Elnor to grow up into you know a fine-looking young man. Though I guess to your point, maybe it's like maybe it's more like a, a. an asymptote or something where like you have super quick acceleration for the first portion of time, and then you hit a certain point where like things slow down from a metabolism perspective until you eventually winnow out at a very, very old age
1: well right you don't you don't necessarily have to age everything that slowly, like your baby Yoda, but you know you can go through puberty at the same rate and then you're an adult for longer, so. I I think that, that makes the most sense to me. And also, you know, you're living this monastic, clean life. I I think that tends to preserve you pretty well as well.
0: That's very true. And he's also never left the planet before. Again, he came to Vashi as a little kid. Seems like he's pretty much been raised there. I mean, that, that head, Kovat Bin Lat, tells Picard, like, you know, Picard says, if I take him aboard, he may die. And she basically says, like, yeah, I kind of want him to, because then he'll at least have lived, instead of just, like dying here, you know, being a a small-time sellsword, helping people across the river. I want him to actually experience the life that he missed out on. And that'll be really interesting as well, because something that uh, Evan also talked to me about is that we're going to be seeing a lot of the universe through Elnor's eyes, because it'll both be our first time looking at things and his first time looking at things too, which I think helps sort of Foreshadow his role in the crew too, where he is this stone cold badass, but he also is probably very wide opened to the to the rest of the universe as it will, as opposed to these people like Rafi and Rios who are almost just like cynical of things at this point. I think it's going to be a fun counterbalance.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a new perspective. I think in the Star Trek universe, usually you're already you go you come in in medias res and you're on the spaceship already, and everyone on the spaceship has been to space a lot of times, and this is a new thing for somebody that's not actually ever been off of his planet to get out and see the wider galaxy and to experience all of this new stuff through his eyes will be a really interesting and powerful thing, I think.
0: Right, and we have that a bit with Dr. gerardi as well. You know, she uh, talks with Rios in the beginning of this episode about how she didn't realize how boring— space was and she's sort of becoming a bit stir crazy i'm sure she was hoping for that wide emptiness and all the back catalog magazines when she was dog fighting that bird of prey by the end of it so yeah she's sort of in that same camp and i guess we got it a bit with like the kid characters right you're wesley in tng you could argue you're jake for a bit of D Space mm-hmm. nine who is the um who is the? Was there? There was an ensign on Voyager, right? That Janeway sort of took on as like a a like role as well. Who was sort of like the the bright eyed, bushy tailed new person on the on the ship?
1: I think Harry Kim starts out like that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that that's true. I had one more question about all of the Voshty of it all. Um, I want to talk about Picard's inexplicable decision. To rock up to a Romulan's only bar and start some shit, like knowing that everyone, everyone with pointy ears and a brow hates him, and he's just like sits down, and is like give me a drink. Was he actually baiting Elnor into coming and helping him, or did he actually want to be yelled at by the Romulan Terry Crews?
0: Yeah, see that's the thing. Oh man, I, I wish that guy. That guy had a brand deal for Romulan Old Spice before his head got cut off. Now he's nothing. Uh- <laughs>
1: Look at your man. Look at me. Yeah, exactly. Now look at this sword cutting off my head.
0: Oh, and he would have had a role on Brooklyn Deep Space Nine-Nine. He had a whole career ahead of him, and look what Elnor did. So, yeah, I was so intrigued by that, because we see this cantina, right? And the sign says, Romulans only. But I'm trying to figure out, because we know that, obviously, Vashi has fallen into disrepair. It's, like, ruled by warlords and smugglers and this one jerk that apparently just has this, like, vintage bird of prey he's using to sort of annoy everybody. So does Romulans only mean that, like, okay, Romulans, you stay in this section and you have to sit here and you can't go anywhere else? Or is it, we're Romulans, we're so much better than everyone else, so this is only where we can sit. You can't sit here with us.
1: Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think it's more like, if if some, by some miracle, some person who shows up who's not a Romulan, we're not going to serve him. You know, it's like when they rock up to the Mos Eisley Cantina and
0: mm-hmm. are told
1: that droids cannot be served.
0: Exactly. So they just have to wait for the management to die out. So then when we see uh you know a, a group of people arrive then it's going to be operated by the very people who were banned from it so we'll see maybe we'll find some humans operating it if we ever go back to Vashti but uh, i mean
1: yeah. get B Arthur in on that she's pretty oh, good boy. at running cantinas
0: yes this is the end my friend it was the end for one of these poor robulets so yeah i i was so intrigued by this as well because Picard just has nerves of steel and I wonder if it was really a mixture of things. I could imagine some frustration, uh, you know, when he beams down on the planet and he tries to exchange pleasantries. Very understandably, nobody is giving it to him. And I think he's finally... Maybe talking with Eleanor was really the straw that broke the camel's back and made him realize the exact gravity of what he did and specifically what he left behind, that it might have been a moment of frustration. But I think you bring up a great point where... This is Picard we're talking about. It could have also been a tactic to, you know, poke this guy, to hopefully not poke this guy with a sword, get a fight going so that Elnor would have to defend him and then officially declare himself the Colin the Carr or whatever, you know, uh, what Dothraki-esque word they put in for this episode. <laughs>
1: Galankai,
0: I think. Yeah, that's what
1: it was. <laughs> I, did, I, I tried to get it phonetically. I had the captions on and it was going by pretty fast.
0: I mean, the whole Kovat Millar to begin with was like, felt like you were smashing your fist on the keyboard to spell it. So I sort of just stopped there.
1: Yeah. It's like they got a bunch of names from like George Lucas's garage sale. Yeah,
0: exactly. Like they just looked in the extended universe and they're like, okay, what, what letters can we switch around in two of these names to make a brand new name?
1: Yeah, let's reach into this bag of Scrabble tiles and see yeah, exactly. what we got. exactly,
0: and see if we can score the highest word possible. I Maybe Star Trek Star Wars Scrabble would actually be a very high-scoring game in general, considering how many Qs and Zs and Xs are used.
1: Well, apparently Klingon Boggle is a thing. That was a plot point in Big Bang Theory.
0: Oh my god, really?
1: Yeah, and they're like, we spelled rach and rach and rach. It was... I don't know. I think someone thought it was funny.
0: See, I'm, I mean, I'm personally... The more interesting thing would be to say that it was an emotional reaction, but knowing Picard, I, I, part of me feels it was a tactical reaction to try to get Eleanor on his side. I think he's, you know, had some mea culpas with people before and his apologies have worked in the past. And to your point earlier, this was a very, very interesting situation because it was one of the very few where his apology didn't work. He apologized several times to these people and they basically said... We don't care. That does not undo 14 years of damage that you brought to us. And so maybe he decided that he had to go a different way into things to get what he wanted. I
1: guess so, but I, I like him a little bit less this episode for spending the whole episode groveling and prostrating himself and being repentant for what he has done to these people. And then when it didn't work, the second he gets the kid to come with him, he just starts yelling at him like you have to do everything my way, like the this kid owes him something now.
0: Yeah, so I guess we can talk about that as well because Elnor has sort of like lent his services, or I guess he said he, he what he bound his sword to Picard. Does that make him his servant? Does that make him his employee? Does or is it closer to like a friend level? Maybe Picard's taking advantage of their unique dynamic as well. I think I saw uh, Alex Kurtzman on the Ready Room this week said that Eleanor is basically the closest thing Picard has to his son. Wesley Crusher is crushed, uh, as, oh, unfortunately. But he said it
1: to Will Wheaton's face, too. Yeah,
0: exactly. You see Will Wheaton's face just fall of like, oh my God, I got the silver medal now. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that. That probably was something couched in it too of, of you know a father chastising a son of like don't you ever do that again you have to listen to me but yeah it was a really interesting reaction where after that senator gets beheaded they board above the on the La Serena and Picard immediately turns to him and basically just like berates him after this guy promised himself to him I guess Picard felt like the ink was dry so now he could do whatever he wanted
1: yeah I, I guess this is a pretty binding contract but also maybe Elnor has some issues like this is the one father figure in my life and he disappeared and maybe on some deep level he blames himself so he's very eager to please
0: him. Mm. But yeah. yeah,
1: this was just like, why Why are you yelling at him? He's doing you a favor.
0: Yeah, well, I think he also just watched a guy's head get cut off in front of him. So maybe he was freaking out a little bit trying to rob, wipe off the Romulan blood. But yeah, you bring up a good point as to – I guess when Elnor will be quote unquote released from this contract, it would not be surprising if he was released either with his death or like the completion of the mission, though we find out at the end here that the big, you know, one piece of criteria for a member of the Kovat Milat to promise their sword to somebody is if it is a hopeless cause, which maybe things are a little less hopeless. You know, Picard purposely stopped off at Vashti to both take care of some unfinished business, but also to hire Somebody to help accompany him on his mission. So I guess he makes things a little less hopeless. But again, we'll see. We'll see how many phasers are involved and if that's could actually measure up.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. And I, like you said, I it's hard to imagine what kind of role he plays if his whole thing is swords and they're going to be in the ship the whole time.
0: Yeah, which is also I will note that you know we had Rafi Girardi and Rios pretty much in the ship the entire time, which. Lends further credence to your theory, Jess, that Rios is the main hologram. considering we have yet to see him leave his ship, as of Picard. Yeah, I mean, well let's
1: let's go let's go to the ship for a second because I want to beat this drum a little bit harder because we get to meet a few more Rios hologram clones in this episode, and boy, they're really milking this hard. He's like, what accent can I do next week? Like, who could I be next time? Could I? You know, could I be Scottish next week? And they're like, no, we've already done Scottish. Um do you maybe have a do maybe have a drunk Mexicali street kid who only speaks Spanish. Okay, yeah, 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 I can do that one.
0: Yeah, why 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 is his security person like so lackadaisical slash perennially hungover, I'm assuming. That is a terrible person to hire for that position.
1: It it really is, but maybe Maybe when you're in a spaceship, you don't have a lot of internal threats that you have to deal with.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true. I don't know. I liked the uh, the hospitality. The EHH was a good one, even though Eh. I I mean, I thought for a second that it was going to be uh, the navigation one because I feel like Santiago, Santiago Cabrera's like Irish esque accent and American esque accent, which is what the hospitality one was they were sort of similar he was talking a very like similar register of voice so i thought for a second that they were the same one and the nav is just pulling double duty but apparently there's a full hospitality one as well just for decor
1: yeah and i want to i want to go to this all rios's are holograms theory because i think we need to go back to the story the origin story that he gave i think gives a, this away in some fashion because he was the exo on a Starfleet ship and then his captain died and the whole crew died, but he didn't die. And apparently like there's no record of his ship in Starfleet. And this could be the theory I've seen floated about on the internet is that he, he and his fleet of hologram clones Were supposed to be like an all hologram crewed starship, and maybe the captain was the only actual human on board.
0: Mm, I love that. So it's basically like that episode of Short Treks where the ship was abandoned for so long that the AI eventually just kept updating and updating to it forming a, a, a full consciousness. That sort of happened here, where the ship and the holograms. This sort of, you know, we said it said that the ship was wiped from the record. I can understand, like. You know, if this ship got abandoned by its captain, it would be off the record and then it just sort of ran away, kept developing its technology to now form its entire crew of personality slash accents.
1: Yeah, because he, he professes to hate all of these holograms that look like himself and he complains about them constantly. And it's like, well, okay, if you really hate looking at these different iterations of yourself all the time, like maybe don't make them look like you? Maybe get Robert Picardo to come in and be your medical hologram? I don't know, just thought, why do they have to look like you? Maybe maybe it's because you can't control it, because maybe you are also a hologram.
0: Yep, I would say maybe of the four we've met so far, it seems like the tactical one, maybe that was like his first one that just got away from him, because it seems like the tactical one is like, it sort of obeys him, but it seems very slovenly. His hair is so much longer than any of the other Rios holograms who have the much more short, chemt hair. So I can imagine that like this was hologram 1.0, you know? And, and then the prime Rios was like, okay, I, I better start workshopping some of these other ones. We'll leave this one to tactical, to like the, the run and gun type of stuff.
1: Is it like in multiplicity, or maybe he's the copy of the copy?
0: Mm, Interesting. So he's sort of like because he's secondhand, almost that he possesses less clean skills than the E N H or the E H H or the E M H.
1: Yeah. Or maybe it's just like his roguish skills got turned way way up. And I I think he's kind of channeling like he's kind of channeling Jason Momoa here. Mm. This is a very popular look right now.
0: Yeah. And I mean I don't know is Elnor gonna have to make him cut his hair because Elnor's the only one that can pull off a man bun on the Lost Serena right now.
1: Yeah or maybe it's like maybe it's like they have to share hair ties because they're the only two that have the long hair.
0: Can you share a hair tie with a hologram?
1: I don't know, maybe you can generate holographic hair ties. This is a good question because you can generate a whole entire office on the on the holodeck <laughs> of the ship.
0: Yeah, do you think do you think if Picarda, you know, uh, was asked what holodeck would you prefer for your office? Do you think he would have picked the chateau or do you think jabon was you know a bit too uh assumptive with his choice there
1: well i think picard might have said okay since you did already build this set we're gonna want to
0: reuse it <laughs> that's true that's true though i guess i don't know i still think if you ask if you ask john luke picard where would you want to be like i would not be surprised if it was a you know just the his ready room of the enterprise because that that probably felt like where he was the most at home out of everything
1: that would have been funny if he'd like if he'd gone into his study when it was the ready room of the Enterprise. Um, I think, but I think that might have offended Rios.
0: <laughs> yeah, that would have as sort well. Of like, yeah, your ship sucks. You know what's better? My ship that has <laughs> 1980s aesthetics.
1: Yeah, I, I think that would have been kind of a slap in the face.
0: Yeah, but it's interesting. And I, I'm so sad that unfortunately this was not the episode that Rob was on because we got to hear his favorite phrase about like 10 minutes into this episode. <laughs> I know.
1: I, I did track that. Um there was one more thing about the emergency tactical hologram, which I saw somebody note this on Reddit, and I think this is really funny. When they're speaking Spanish to each other, the emergency tactical hologram uses Mexican slang and Rios responds with Chilean slang.
0: Interesting.
1: So I liked the level of detail there. And it's kind of like, look, I can not only can I do all of these accents in English, look at different accents I can do in Spanish.
0: Ooh. Yeah. I mean this is literally like Santiago Cabrera's resume come to life. Yeah. And just personified. Which I guess I would not be surprised, Jess, if like by the twenty four hundreds, if people were going on auditions, they could just produce holograms of the roles that they played as a resume instead of actually auditioning.
1: Well sure. This is like this is like those YouTube videos of the guy that does fifty-three accents in five <laughs>
0: minutes. Exactly. He's going for the world record.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely he's definitely something, but I'm I'm looking forward to like seeing the rest of the It's a Small World ride that is this hologram cast.
0: <laughs> With the La Serena as the little boat. They're just going through uh maybe there's a planet full of like Rios uh holograms that Rios just abandoned on that planet, like Muds <laughs> Women style, and so they just touched down and it's just like hundreds of Rios running over the cliff. Well,
1: we're we're waiting for we're waiting for Mud's women to make its appearance in the in the long form episodes. So that's as good a theory as anything. Uh,
0: yeah, I don't know, Jess. I mean, I guess if this Pike spinoff is really a thing, I think that would be that's where you bring back Harry Mudd. because I, I I don't know, Jess. I feel like we might have like a franchise wrap on Rain Wilson right now if Disco's not going back to where it was.
1: Well, could we bring him back as somebody else?
0: Yeah, I guess so. We could sort of Clint Howard him and just sort of put him in, you know, some loaf and place him somewhere somewhere else. But he was just so... (laughs) He was so much fun as Harry Mudd, uh, especially in that Short tracks episode that it would kind of... I feel like if you look back on that episode, it, it is like a nice farewell to Harry Mudd, but I feel like there was so much other roguishness that could be brought, maybe not so to Discovery, because I think they very much realized they were not that type of show. But I don't know. I feel like Picard could have something like that. You know, again, if it's not a... Harry mud maybe a hairy mud type though considering where we're going i would not be surprised at all if we run into at least two or three of those types of people next time
1: well i i have to think we're gonna run into romulan gang leader guy mm. uh, i think they don't give somebody a name and have him like start pursuing you and trying to kill you if they're not going to bring him back because narratively you could have just said oh, there's a lot of Romulan warlords in the area, and they don't take kindly to strangers, and oh no, we got company, it's a Romulan ship with unnamed Romulans aboard. But they really hammered home that it's this one gang leader guy. He's got to show up again, right? This is like yeah. Chekhov's gang leader.
0: Kar Kantar is his name. And I yes. suppose it also depends on where Free Cloud is in the vicinity of Voscha, considering that it seems like he's w- without a ride at this point. So maybe he'll be able to to lift one. And the other big thing is something that was brought up this episode, this idea of the Romulan rebirth movement, which I'm not sure if that's the same thing necessarily as the Jat Vash or even what's going on on the Borg cube with the Romulan reclamation project. It seems to all be working towards the same purpose, right? Of like, hey, a bunch of Romulans got wiped out, we want to rebuild them. Though this, I guess, seems more of like to be candid a romulan nationalist movement of like hey romulans are the prevailing race we need to rebuild them i thought i saw we got this like ominous shot of people's armbands with like a logo on it i guess that's the logo for the romulan rebirth moment. so i would not be surprised if even though vashti seems to be like the hub for it i would not be surprised if we see that spread throughout the universe wherever these romulans ended up residing
1: yeah i think that that makes a lot of sense um and it's interesting to think about like all of these Romulans getting like sort of dumped on this planet in the beta quadrant. And then they just sort of leave it. It's like broken windows policing. Mm. And all of a sudden, like all these gang leaders and stuff are rising up. And then you have these different political factions that are also rising up out of this displaced peoples. I think, I think it. I'm glad that we're getting several different points of view here and trying to piece them all together and see like who is sympathetic with whom, who shares a goal. This is better than I think – they've tried to do this in other ways in the past in Star Trek, but they always sort of treat one planet as a whole person. Like they treat the Bajorans as kind of having – Like there are a few little extreme factions, but most of the Bajorans all want one thing and all of the Mm. Cardassians want one thing. And it's like, Oh, if you're gray with a spoon on your head, you definitely are on the side of the Cardassians. And this is better. This, I feel like we, I know the Romulans better than almost any other Star Trek race at this point.
0: Absolutely. I would say that another example of that is what they tried to do with the Klingons yep. in in TNG, specifically through Worf. I mean, you know, they really tried to do that, especially with the whole Duras versus Galron becoming, mm-hmm. you know, the High Chancellor and the assist from the Romulans, actually. And that was a little tough to muddle through. I thought it was, it was really well done, but it was a little tough sometimes of, like, who's on what side and who does what represent. And I feel like literally spacing all these different causes out, will help as well. Something I just, I really loved about this episode is it really bridged that, again, we're sort of harkening back to more episodic Trek of like, hey, let's go down to a planet and see if we can solve an issue right now. But it also has a, a foot in New Trek in that this is a great way to sort of check in. It's almost like, you know, if they had a, if this was a previous episode of Picard going to Vashti and then ends up ending the episode saying he'll leave, and then just not coming back. Like, this is almost a sequel episode, where we get to revisit that mission, and just see the huge effect that Picard had on this society, and on the people in this society, that I feel like, unfortunately, because Episodic Trek did not keep much canon, besides, you know, a couple of storylines, we weren't able to really revisit a lot of it. And so I love being able to embrace that, because, yeah... Absolutely, Picard's absence and just saying, Yeah, you're on your own, sorry, would absolutely leave things to go to shambles. And of course, Fury would grow. And of course, there would be some people that would then form this sort of like antagonistic movement to say Romulans are great. We need to rebuild them in any way possible. I, I love looking at the after effects of this. And like we talked about before, there's nothing Picard can do about it because it was entirely in the actions of his past. Nothing that he can do now can repair what happened. And that's the point, is that not everything can be redone. As you said before, things can be messy. And I I like sort of seeing the messiness and complications of that type of issue, especially steeped in something with a modern comparison like a refugee crisis. Yeah,
1: I I love it when when Star Trek gets sneakily topical.
0: Mm. And Mm -hmm. I I think
1: it, it always has. Like back to the 1960s, Star Trek is always sort of used this sci-fi framework as a way to sneak in commentary on current day issues.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, it was well done here. I mean, there was a focus on it, but at the same time, I think it did an interesting job of telling a refugee story, but was still fairly specific to Star Trek. But I think I can imagine, you know, when I talked to Evan, he said that he definitely pulled on his own father's experiences who, you know, had his own immigration story. And there has to be feelings baked into that, even if your experience is not as depressing or, you know, depraved as what was experienced on Vashti. I can imagine there there are similar sentiments felt on both ends uh, that sort of translate down to this planet. So, yeah, it it made me so excited to see, you know, what Picard is capable of as a show— once it leaves Earth, where there are these still interesting canonical elements to it, but at the same time, it is still able to do those Trek things where, like you said, Jess, it can still do not necessarily a story of the week type of thing, but have them have an adventure that still has meaning, that still has entertainment to it, that still ties back to the main story, so it doesn't feel completely superfluous to it all.
1: Yeah, one of the things I loved about this episode was we had kind of three stories going on in three buckets. You had... What was happening up on the on the ship, and you had what was happening down on the surface, and then of course you had what was happening in the Borg cube. And I felt like the the Picard of it all on the surface was very self contained and was very classic Trek because he was going to a planet and interacting with the people and then leaving the planet at the end. And the ship was sort of like the. Traditional Star Trek B plot of like, Mm -hmm. meanwhile, on the lower decks, here's what the rest of the crew is doing, and here's the thing they're pursuing. And that also felt very self contained. And then you had the board cube story, which was very serialized and very much a continuation of everything we saw in the previous episode and building on that. And I thought that was really fun. That was, I think, in a way better than having everything be serving a huge arc.
0: Mm, it's an interesting point. I will say, my least favorite part of this episode was probably the board cube, just because I start to f- I started to feel a bit of it spinning its wheels. Where you know, I guess because we we've, we've just found out so much about Soji and Nerik and what's going on in the cube in the past few episodes that. We really didn't learn a lot of new information. You know, Narek was trying to, you know, s- spy on what Soji was doing, studying Ramda. He tried to sort of, uh, you know, walk her back from the ledge of suspicion that she was hanging over. They go sliding around for a bit. I guess the one thing we found out, which was sort of confirmed anyway with what Gerardi told us about Dodge, is that, you know, her trip aboard the cube was completely fabricated so she might have just been dropped off there and expected to to work asap with this fictional story it's because i'm just not entirely into the whole like naric soji of it all just yet that I, i was just waiting to go back to the ship and to the planet it was still like interestingly done but it felt like scenes that we had seen before
1: Yeah, Mike, but imagine what if the whole show was that? Because I have certainly watched series where the whole show was that. Mm. I would say your beloved lost had many episodes where (laughs) the whole episode was that.
0: Yeah. I, oh, I would definitely agree with that. And that's why I think it it did a good job of like, okay, if, if we're going to go back to the cube every episode, at least designate it to like a certain portion of the show. And, you know, maybe provide some new parts of the cube. Here we got, like, a little bit of, like, a a Ten Forward-esque type of place, a lounge that they went to. We found ourselves in the Ventilation Return, where they're sliding around, like, the beginning of the Peanuts Christmas special. (laughs) You know, like, there's all these... It's interesting, you know, there was this whole section, right, that they said, like, you can't go in very dangerous unless you have clearance. Yet there are empty passageways of this cube that people can just run down and not get any danger, uh, you know, of, of really getting into trouble. Because I guess the Borg had sort of moved, those are no Borg zones, but there's just enough space that you can run around willy-nilly without bumping into another Romulan.
1: Well, I'm sure somebody's like building a basketball court in one of these areas.
0: I can imagine. So maybe like a trampoline basketball court, considering that Romulans apparently uh, love their extreme sports, quote unquote, with how <laughs> much fun Narek was having.
1: I I don't know why your first frame of reference actually i do because i know how old you are i don't know why your first frame of reference wasn't tom cruise in risky business
0: mm, i was definitely thinking that as well uh, i don't know maybe i was thinking of like the vent the ventilation air of it all maybe you know what it is actually it's it's like an air hockey table right with like the <laughs> air yes. pushing up the surface that you can slide underneath and that's essentially what Narek was doing maybe it's because i was also a little off put by like harry Treadaway showing he can have fun Because this character has made me suspicious of, like, okay, is he really having fun, or is he pretending to be having fun, or is he pretending to be pretending to be having fun?
1: Yeah, I think we're supposed to feel like he might be catching feelings with his sudden turn toward the manic pixie dream Romulan. (laughs)
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, could you imagine him in like a Natalie Portman turtle helmet from Jersey, from a uh, garden state? Just like say, Hey, come on over. It's, it's going to be a fun time. Don't worry about Ramda. We're going to have a cute little expedition. And then I guess is Rizzo like the Peter Sarsgaard character who just like comes in and reminds him of sobering reality.
1: I I think that's exactly what's happening here. And like next week, Narek is going to be like, yeah, we got to listen to this song by the Shins. It's going to change
0: your life. Well, listen, again, we know their obsession with uh, technology and pop culture from the 20th to 21st century. So I would not be surprised, though. uh, Rizzo, just like you're not helping your case when you wake up your brother by caressing him. I'm just going to say I hate to keep going back to this. Well, Jess, but they make it so damn easy
1: why, why is this why why is it a thing like we didn't like it in Game of Thrones either like nobody's clamoring for this
0: i, I I'm so weirded out by this, like, like just um, make
1: them not related. why do they have to be related
0: yeah, unless brother or sister is more so like a cheeky term of like, hey, you're such a good friend of mine, you could be my brother, like I'll it's, see
1: you another life, brother,
0: yeah, exactly like. And maybe it was that she was waking him up to, like—because she's basically mocking him at this point, right? Of, like, oh, you've gotten too soft, you've fallen so in love with her, and you're into that that USB port that, like, let me touch you like she would touch you. But still, like, if you're his sister, you don't touch him like that, okay?
1: Yeah. Why are they related? I—I—
0: I- I- I really don't know. I'm just really scared for the next time they have a check in. Because, like, we're only escalating things further and further, Jess. I don't know how much more we have to go. There's only so many bases in baseball, you know?
1: Yeah, I don't want to watch them go to eighth base. No. And, you know, it's a streaming service, so they don't have any sensors to answer to.
0: Exactly. We have Rios dropping F bombs. Like, they can do anything here.
1: It's really uncharted territory. But the one thing, the one thing I think that the Borg cube plot advanced this week was more suspicion on this ship full of Romulans that was the last thing the Borg Cube assimil- assimilated. I they think they're asking the wrong questions, but they're getting us closer to some kind of explanation for what exactly went wrong here because they're asking, okay, what was this ship doing when they got assimilated and what happened to them while they were assimilated? And it's, I think it is pointing to Something happened when the peanut butter of the Borg met the chocolate of the Romulans, Mm -hmm. and when those two things hit each other, bad stuff happened because there's some secret. I think it's the jat secret that Romulans plus Borg equals badness.
0: Yeah, and that that also might link to – we heard – Ramda's Ted talk about this right in the beginning that Soji was listening into about this, uh, Gan Madan, which I heard on screen, Crush was essentially referred to as like the Romulan Ragnarok. <laughs> uh, yeah. Ba- basically, you know, the chains will be destroyed and, uh, you know, the enslaved will rise up at the hands of the destroyer, uh, and, you know, to undertake what is the day of annihilation and ri- wipe out Romulans everywhere. And it, that's really interesting language, because that whole idea of, like, breaking the chains of the unshackled sort of makes me think of sense, And so, again, if you're thinking about things maybe from a more mythological or, I guess, from a Romulan perspective, a news-based lens, maybe it could also be a thing of—and we talked about this a bit last episode—but this fear that Synths could become rogue, you know, and rise up and destroy the Romulans for whatever reason— once this idea of the destroyer is woken up. And the assumption as well is that, you know, there might be nests of synths everywhere and planets. And so maybe the entire Jat Vash fear is founded in this idea of Ganmaden of essentially trying to prevent the Romulan apocalypse by trying to get rid of as many synths as possible.
1: And identifying Soji as the destroyer The fear is that when she activates, she's going to wake up a whole bunch of these synths and Mm -hmm. bring about Ramageddon.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Ramageddon. Uh, Yeah, but basically, I I mean, that's a big conclusion to jump to, but I guess that's their major plan at the moment. I don't know why they've targeted her specifically. Maybe it's because, for one reason or another, Maddox might have put Dodge and Soji as his only androids out in the open. Maybe there are synths that are hidden you know, in distant planets all around the universe that are just waiting to wake up at the signal of the quote-unquote destroyer. It just hasn't happened yet. And that's another reason why I think Narek is trying to be very careful. He said he planted the first seed of doubt, which is interesting. I guess that was sort of him bringing up the whole manifest, where when he he wants her to wake up, but I think he wants her to wake up on his own terms so that she doesn't end up, you know, karate chopping and killing all these Jat Vash people like Dodge did.
1: Yeah, I think you you got to play your you got to play your triangular cards very carefully <laughs> in a situation like this.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, all right, let's put in a prediction here, Jess. When do we think Picard's mission and the events on the Borg Cube are going to finally meet? We're on episode four right now. We have six episodes left of season one.
1: My guess is that um, we finished chapter one. We've talked about this in terms of chapters. The first three episodes are chapter one. This is the bridge chapter. The next three episodes are chapter two. I would say by the end of chapter two, I think the, I think we have probably at least two and a half more episodes where we do not have any interaction between the two storylines. And I think maybe the tail end of episode seven. Mm. And then we have episodes eight and nine to be like kind of the cataclysmic, uh, apex of it and then episode 10
0: is the falling action and something that complicates this even further jess as you talk about adding members to the crew she may be temporary but we have a new addition coming right at the end of the episode here and you can yep. only imagine giving her you know her connection to what's going on right now how big of an impact she's going to have in her albeit limited time on the show
1: Jerry Ryan looks
0: amazing. She really the she's rocking that long hair.
1: Yeah. That it is such a great look and such fan service. Oh, oh my yeah. god. It's the most fan service-y fan service I have ever seen. She she's got long hair, she's buff, she's still gorgeous and then we get this shot in the next episode where she is double fisting these giant yep. guns. And she is kicking ass and taking names, and it is everything you want in a Star Trek scene if you are into
0: that sort of thing yeah i 'm really intrigued to see where this goes because I mean this crew has all been even though they 're under different you know inhibitions and volitions, they are united under this central idea where Starfleet did them dirty in some way, shape, or form. We obviously have the obvious with Picard. Starfleet shut down Gerati's place of work, essentially. Starfleet fired Rafi. Starfleet either eliminated Rios' job or eliminated the person that Rios looked up to and let him be a hologram aboard this abandoned ship. And Starfleet was one of the reasons why Picard abandoned Elnor on his planet. And it seems like Seven of Nine is a bit rogue on her own. Obviously she's obviously she's not in a Starfleet uniform. I think Jerry Ryan had said in preseason stuff that she sort of is either off on her own or working for another organization. I mean, clearly she was sort of, I don't know, I don't know if she happened to run into the Beta Quadrant or if she was happened to be policing this route for whoever she works for when she happened to swoop in and save the La Serena at the last second. But it's clear she sort of is off doing her own thing from the last time we saw them. So a lot of independent agents working here. And I guess depending on what what Seven of Nine wants, that might affect the mission as well. As well as, I mean, if she is still on board and she finds out that Soji, the person they're after, is on an abandoned Borg cube, I cannot imagine the complications that will ensue.
1: I think she must, she must have some inkling of it. Mm. I, I think that's not a coincidence that she's just rolling up to this mission at this point. I think, there's so much tied up in the idea of people being part machine and where is your humanity if you are made of parts. And I think she's got to have a piece of this puzzle. And she's she's here for a reason. And I don't know if she knows explicitly that there's a Borg cube involved, but – you don't just bring her on like she happens to be strolling by and sees a ship in distress. I there's there's some other connection there, and I'm I'm excited to find out what it is.
0: Yeah, could it be here's a big theory. What if Bruce Maddox is indeed on Free Cloud, knows that Picard is interested in finding him and almost sends seven M9 as like his emissary or like, you know, his hired hand to make sure they get there safely so he can consult with them without any sort of shenanigans ensuing. Though, of course, they will.
1: Yeah, I mean, shenanigans are a given. But that makes that makes as much sense as anything else. I think the only thing that we really know canonically about what Seven of Nine has been up to since the end of Voyager, I think there is, there is some, I, I think in one of the novels, like she and Hugh helped broker some peace treaties.
0: Mm, yeah, I remember hearing about that.
1: Yeah. So she's had some experience, like, as an ex-Borg, and she probably, they probably have support group meetings. Like, she's probably seen Picard before. Like, they probably sit around and, like, well, when I was part of the Borg.
0: Yeah. And and that's interesting as well, is that, you know, that she still goes by Seven of Nine, even all these years later. Except, what was her pre similar name? Like, Annika?
1: Annika or- Hansen.
0: Yeah, so you, you would think that maybe she would want to go back to that name, but maybe Seven of Nine means so much more to her now, considering maybe that's the name that she went by on Voyager when she first became a part of Starfleet, that she wants to keep it. I guess just compared to, like, you know, Hugh's not still calling himself Three of Five, you know?
1: Well, no, but he was given a name pretty early on, at post-assimilation.
0: Mm, maybe she should have picked another name, even besides Annika.
1: Yeah, you get to pick your own name. Yeah. Sky's the limit. Like, who's going to who's going to stop you?
0: Yeah, exactly. And you can just take all the 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 Q's and O's and Z's that you want to and just make a name out of that. Nobody's going to quibble with it.
1: Totally. Although it maybe it is sort of like um, how you can't give yourself a nickname.
0: Mm, So it has to be gifted to you.
1: Right. Like she can't just she can't just decide she's going to be called T-Bone.
0: Right. Maybe it was a thing where she wanted a new nickname and she was desperate for it, but then she went to her favorite sandwich shop and ordered like uh you know a number 7 and a number 9 and her coworkers were like, "Hey, 7 of 9, that's a great nickname. We're going to call you that from now on."
1: Maybe. So you're saying she was like not even 7 of 9 when she was Borg?
0: Yeah, exactly. Like they, it was only thrust upon her just because of the her favorite order at, you know, the local uh the local I don't know, uh, the local Subway, I suppose. Space Subway. It, does Neelix work at space subway?, oh I hope not. Yikes. that's the one maybe what the there's a short list of characters from Trek history that I would hope would not make their way into twenty ten sh- trek and I think Neelix is near the top there for me
1: all right. all right, fair enough, Mike. so before we before we start to shut things down um on that delicious note, <laughs> is there anything else we need to highlight from this episode?
0: I just have to repeat again how much I really like this. Like you said, it feels a little bit like a weird addendum to the first three episodes, given we're still adding people onto this crew. But, like, I don't know, this made me really hopeful. You know, I think we got a good tone of the show for the first few episodes as to the stakes of Picard, where Picard is with his life. But I was a little intrigued to see him actually go into space, because it's something that we all wanted as fans. But how is it going to balance satiating that while simultaneously also serving the canon and the themes that it was working towards. And I feel like this episode did a really, really good job at that. I was really intrigued by everything going on with Vashi. We got to see more of this ensemble get built out as well aboard the ship. We were wondering how this motley crew is going to interact. And while they'll get their trial by fire next week, we saw the seeds of it being planted this time out. The board cubes up, I I could take or leave, but it didn't detract from the episode. But it just made me... Really excited, especially for next week, because it looks like we're actually going to Free Cloud and things apparently are going to be really crazy. So, if we're in the mood for like, we had a lot of dramatics going on this past episode dealing with the aftermath of this refugee crisis, but it looks like we're in for some like rollicking good fun next time, which makes me very happy because Picard is a dramatic show, but. the best star trek has shown it can be both lighthearted and also very serious so i'm really excited to touch upon the comedy mask after spending so much time in that drama mask
1: yeah honestly on my wish list for free cloud i want a billy d williams cameo
0: oh i love that free cloud Cloud city
1: City. damn skippy mike
0: (laughs) exactly but then is billy d williams gonna he's gonna like take him in but then betray them at the end of the day to the jat vosh
1: he's gonna sell him out to maddox like oh. actually maybe he will turn out it, it's like he's the secret identity of Bruce Maddox.
0: Hmm, interesting. So that Bruce Maddox just really changed himself. Maybe actually this is like an android body and he sort of uploaded his consciousness in it before he died.
1: Yeah, I mean if you're going to be an android body, why don't why don't you be billion? Yeah. Billions? And if
0: you if you can perfect technology that allows you to create you know, spiritual offspring of other androids using like one neutron, I think you could probably do that very easily, right? That's child's play. Oh
1: sure, sure. I mean Data could do it with his with his offspring way back in way back in the Data Wants to be a dad kind of days.
0: Mm. Speaking of which actually, were you do you think Elnor's disappointed there are no cats aboard the La Serena?
1: He's never even seen a cat, so I don't know how he'd be disappointed
0: yet. But. Just, I just love the fact that that's, you can still tell that Elnor is like a kid at heart, because when Picard told him the story about Data, he's like, oh yeah, Data, the guy with the cat, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think at this point, he's got he's to get a kitten before the end of the series.
0: Uh, I, I'm a little scared about that, to have a man who uses a sword around an animal, but I, I assume he uses good care. The nuns probably taught him well.
1: I mean, that's like the first day of class.
0: Yeah, the first day in the Coat Milat is they give you a kitten and says, like, it has to live to see the end of the day or I'm taking away your sword.
1: Oh, boy. Yeah, that's that's an exam you don't want to flunk.
0: Yeah. And with Picard, it's just giving him a child for the day.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's even worse. (laughs) All right, Mike. So what are you up to outside of the Star Trek world?
0: Well, so a brief glimpse into the Star Trek world. I mentioned that I'm doing, of course, stuff at cbr.com slash tag slash Picard. I'm of always doing uh, weekly recaps of the episodes. So if you want to check those out, go a bit more in depth as to what happened. And I did, as I mentioned before, I did an interview with uh, Evan Evagora, who had a really interesting process both on and off screen he is a very new actor, as I think we talked about this during our preview. And so he got, you know, a whole not only wealth of experience in playing Eleanor, but also in working with Patrick Stewart. And so he, he spoke to me a lot about working with Patrick Stewart as a captain, working with Picard as a captain and just becoming a better actor from it. And, you know, it's so great to hear these stories between him And Michelle Hurd and Santiago Cabrera about working with Patrick Stewart. I mean, you could just tell the reverence they have for him is just unmatched. And that makes it so cool. Because I feel like, especially on a set for a piece of television or film, like you want to enjoy the people that you work with. That's going to make you want to stay on set and work harder. And I feel like Patrick Stewart is really making that environment. And it's been so accommodating to produce this type of work. So doing that mentioned the Lost Podcast. I'm doing a butt ton of Survivor content as well for parade.com slash tag slash Survivor. You can check all that out on my Twitter and Instagram at a Mike Bloom type.
1: That's wonderful, Mike. You are truly the hardest working man in podcasting. Uh, I am doing far less than you are um, these days, but Over at primetimer.com, you can see me writing a few feature articles, including one about This Is Us that should be dropping ahead of the next episode on Tuesday, uh, in which I talk about all of the unanswered questions that we need to have resolved by the end of the season. I'm also podcasting about The Walking Dead, which comes back on February 23rd. So,
0: Holy moly, that snuck up on us.
1: I know. I don't even think, I don't even think Josh Wiggler had it on his radar. And I'm like, Hey, guess what's happening? And I think, I think I sort of blindsided him with it. So we will be back talking about that here on post show recaps. I'm also going to be a guest on this week in survivor history with Jordan Kalish this week. And I have many more exciting podcast guest slots and other coverage coming down the pike. So stay tuned for that. All right, Mm -hmm. you can follow me on Twitter at Haymaker Hattie. You can follow Mike on Twitter at Mike Bloomtype, and that is just one way that you can give us feedback about everything that's going on in Star Trek: Picard and elsewhere. And we would love to hear from you. Uh, You can also leave a comment on the page for the episode at PostShowRecaps dot com, or you can rate and review us in the iTunes Store. And if you have nice things to say about us, that helps boost our profile. It grows our listener base, and it makes us all much happier individuals. So, if you're inclined to do something like that, we much appreciate it. You can subscribe to our Star Trek only feed at pusha recaps slash Star Trek, and there are many other fun post show recaps. Things the aforementioned Walking Dead. There is some Curb Your Enthusiasm coverage. There is, of course, Down the Hatch. Mike and Josh's very fine Lost coverage, and. There's just so much more out in the greater Robes podcast world. Mm-hmm. You literally can't listen to everything now. I don't think there are enough hours in the day, which is very gratifying. And we're happy to have you on board. Um, and we're very happy. We know you have many options of podcasts to choose
0: from, <laughs> but we're happy you selected, uh, you selected our Star Trek Picard coverage. Jess, is this is us the Borg's favorite show? Um, I
1: think. I think the Borg's favorite show is definitely This Is Us. And, the, you know, it plays fast and loose with time. It talks about the collective. Of course it is.
0: Yeah, I love Maybe that's what's keeping This Is Us on the on the air for so long, is that's, that damn Borg demo that everyone's after. You know those Borg, they really love a good cry. Though I guess, do they count as like one share, or do they count as many shares?
1: I think they count as like one collective share, but if you watch the reruns while you're up in Unimatrix Zero, then... All bets are off.
0: Mm, all right. Well, now we finally realize where all the Nielsen data came from. So I'm going to the cube and see if, I mean, the cube is a box. So I guess it is literally a Nielsen box in that regard.
1: Yeah. The Borg are apparently also really big fans of NCIS. And that explains huh.
0: those ratings too. That makes so much more sense now. So if you see a show that you feel why it's still on the air, it's a Borg. The Borg are behind it all.
1: Yep. It's it's definitely the Borg. <laughs> So on that note, uh, we want to thank you guys again for tuning in. And thank you, Mike, for joining me on this crazy ride, finally in space. And we will see you next week for episode five. So take care, everybody. Happy night.